This is an ABC podcast. The government has announced a wide-ranging review of the Reserve Bank. This will be the first time in decades that the central bank comes under scrutiny for its operations and its performance in crisis times. A review into the Reserve Bank will cover everything from its purpose to who sits on the board. I don't want it to be exclusively focused on a backward-looking, blame-shifting exercise. I want it to genuinely be about how do we have the world's best central bank... The decisions of Australia's central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia, or RBA, affect every part of our lives. Our chances of getting a job, the mortgages we pay, and the cost of supermarket items, as well as regulating and maintaining the stability of our financial system. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince, and in this Rear Vision, the story of Australia's central bank, the RBA. But first, what exactly is a central bank and how does it differ from a commercial or savings bank? A central bank functions both as a regulator and as a bank, but it's a special type of bank. It's a banker of banks and often also the banker for governments. My name is Louise Parsons. I'm an associate professor at Bond University on the Gold Coast I'm also the chairperson of the Academic Committee of the Banking and Financial Services Law Association. So it's not possible for members of the public to open a bank account at the central bank, but all the big banks, such as the big banks in Australia, will have accounts with the central bank where they will settle their various exchange accounts. It's usually also the issuer of the currency. So all the Australian currency can only be issued by the Reserve Bank of Australia. Also, central banks have really important roles in monetary policy, and that's usually with a focus on inflation. So central banks are important. They are the banker of banks and governments, and they set monetary policy. Politicians began talking about creating a central bank here in Australia at the end of the 19th century. The context was a high level of capitalist instability through most of the 19th century, particularly in the 1890s when we had a major downturn. Carl Boris Shedvin, Professor Emeritus from the University of Melbourne. Most of that instability was a result of weaknesses in the financial system. There was a lot of bank failure in the 1890s. The origin of central banking, which was pioneered, of course, by the Bank of England going way back, was to try and iron out those sources of instability in financial system. After Federation, that debate continued. The Labor Party pushed the debate along, and so the Commonwealth Bank was created by the Labor government of Andrew Fisher in 1911, Selwyn Cornish. I'm an honorary associate professor in the Research School of Economics in the College of Business and Economics at ANU. The Commonwealth Bank was initially established as a government-owned commercial bank to compete against the private banks to provide some stability to the banking system, but it slowly evolved into a joint government-owned commercial bank and central bank. Did the Commonwealth Bank have an important role that it played during World War I in the 1920s? Both those things, the First World War and the Depression, led to the Commonwealth Bank taking on central banking functions. For example, during the 
First World War, the government had to borrow a lot of money and the Commonwealth Bank was given responsibility for managing the loans, floating the loans. And that was a big step forward towards central banking. The inflation at the end of the First World War led to the responsibility for the issuing of currency notes being transferred from the Treasury to the Commonwealth Bank. And of course, the depression led to the Commonwealth Bank taking a greater responsibility for the exchange rate and for the setting of interest rates. So both those things were important in the development of central banking. But did the Commonwealth Bank or any other central bank help stabilise the economy during the depression of the 1930s? No central banks functioned very well at all in the Great Depression. I'm Professor Stephen Bell, School of Political Science and International Studies, University of Queensland. And I'll get you to say the name of your book in relation to the Reserve Bank as well. Australia's Money Mandarins, the Reserve Bank and the Politics of Money. Ben Bernanke, head of the Federal Reserve in the US, is a student of the Great Depression and monetary policy and has written fulsomely about the failures of the Federal Reserve Bank of England, the Commonwealth Bank in Australia, all were adopting essentially sound money policies, all were operating in the interests of debt holders. The depression initiated the call of pay the money back, you will honour your debts. So this is a recipe for a constrictionist policy, not an expansionary policy. So central banks have learned an awful lot from that experience. So the response now to a downturn, and we saw that particularly after the global financial crisis, is stimulatory lower interest rates, pump the economy with liquidity, keep things buoyant. During World War II, the Commonwealth Bank played a critical role as the banker to the Australian government. It's important to realise that there were important changes during the war itself. There was heavy regulation of most aspects of the economic system as a result of wartime needs. For example, interest rates to be kept as low as possible to allow the government more degrees of financial flexibility. And in 45, those wartime powers were transferred in a more formal way to the Commonwealth Bank, which allowed it to become more or less effectively a central bank. The central banking powers given to the Commonwealth Bank in 1945 were set out in a charter. It stated that these powers were to be used to ensure the stability of the currency of Australia, the maintenance of full employment in Australia and the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia. But were these powers consistent with the bank's commercial and saving bank functions? Remembering that the Commonwealth Bank had evolved with, first of all, as a savings bank primarily, secondly, as a what they used to call at the time a commercial or trading bank, and the growing powers that we've been speaking about of central banking. Now, there was a good deal of conflict with the responsibilities of those three types of banking. Private banks were hostile to the Commonwealth Bank having all that power to regulate them and also the Commonwealth Bank to gain its own share of the market. So the split, as it was called in 1959, effective 1960, was to remove all of those commercial activities from the Commonwealth Bank and to create the Reserve Bank of Australia. This new central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia, took over all the central banking powers given to the Commonwealth Bank in 1945. 
Reserve Bank of Australia had the exact same mandate. And those three important points, stability of the currency, full employment, and the economic prosperity and welfare of the Australian public, those three priorities existed before the formation of the Reserve Bank of Australia and are still central to its functioning. In the first, say, 10 years through the 1960s, how did that first Reserve Bank actually function and was it independent of government? No, the, the Reserve Bank was a, a very subservient institution. It was dominated by the Federal Treasury and the Treasury Secretary and the Treasurer. The Reserve Bank basically provided information to other decision makers and was not the one that was making monetary policy. Cabinet had a monetary policy committee and the bank was one voice on that committee, but basically the Treasurer and the government set policy. And that was prevalent right through the 60s, 70s and into the 1980s. The way the Commonwealth Bank, Reserve Bank in the 50s and 60s and through the 70s tried to conduct monetary policy was through what are called direct controls. In other words, the government and the bank controlled interest rates, controlled bank lending and According to the Constitution, or what was thought the Constitution was saying, was that the federal parliament, and hence the federal government, had control only over banks. So that non-banking financial institutions like building societies, credit unions, merchant banks and so on, it was thought were not subject to these government controls. So by imposing those direct controls, interest rate controls, lending controls and so on, on banks, that encouraged the growth of non-banks that were not controlled. And so you had a vast increase in credit unions, building societies, merchant banks and so on. Now, the Reserve Bank, they were alive to this and they spent a lot of time through the 60s, through the 70s, pushing for more deregulated ways of conducting monetary policy that would embrace the non-banks as well as the banks. So they wanted more market control, get rid of the direct controls, use market instruments. And the bank was pushing that, pushing that, pushing that, pushing that. And the Campbell Committee, which was set up by the government to survey the Australian financial system, also recommended the elimination of direct controls and the greater use by the central bank of market instruments. And so you had the deregulation of the financial system and the floating of the exchange rate in December 1983. It was the Hawke-Keating Labor government that oversaw the deregulation of the financial system and the floating of the dollar. What impact did these changes have on the economy and the RBA? Oh, look, it had a profound impact and no central bank, including the Australian central bank, was really aware or fully aware of what the implications would be of a deregulated financial system. So the main, one of the main things was Increasingly, bank interest rates were deregulated, but the main one was the float of the Australian dollar in late 83, and that meant that the bank had lost control over that particular arm of policy. So what was left was short-term interest rate manipulation. But it was unclear how that process would work, and it was unclear even then what the aims of policy were. So a chapter in my book, Australia's Money Mandarins, 
deals with the 80s and the chapter is called Into the Monetary Policy Wilderness. And basically, it was a very difficult period for the bank to work out what it was supposed to be doing and how it was supposed to be doing it. After the flood, the Reserve Bank didn't really know how to set monetary policy. My name is Peter Tulip. I'm the Chief Economist of the Centre for Independent Studies. And it went through a succession of different regimes. There was a period where we tried to target monetary aggregates. There was what they called a checklist approach where they looked at everything and somehow figured out from that what they were meant to do with interest rates until finally in the early 1990s, the Reserve Bank settled on a system of inflation targeting. One of the key economic difficulties facing the RBA and all central banks through the 1970s and into the 1980s was inflation. Australia adopted high interest rates in the early 80s to try and deal with inflation. There was a big choice to be made by the government about which approach to inflation it would try and adopt. So the the leading overseas examples of the time was the US Federal Reserve under Paul Volcker, which cranked up interest rates to a bit over 20% in the early 80s. Similar sort of approach in the UK. So this was what some economists call hardball economics. It's basically huge interest rate hikes, a policy-induced recession, rapidly rising unemployment, and the main target was to reduce wage pressures, which is a key driver of inflation in that stagflationary era of the 1970s. And policymakers in the late 70s were really worried about that sort of hardball approach because they worried about their commitment to full employment, particularly by 83 when Labor was elected. So Labor worked on monetary policy in a slightly softer approach and used the Accord, a wages agreement with the trade union movement to try and moderate inflation that way. And that was reasonably successful in slowly and perhaps more humanely compared to what happened in the US, for instance, bringing down inflation you know, through a more negotiated approach. Some economists and certainly the opposition and some parts of the media thought that it wasn't nearly fast enough and nor was it aggressive enough. A lot of that debate got blown out of the water by the high interest rates of the late 80s and then the recession. First thing to say is that the accounts do show that Australia's in a recession. The most important thing about that is that this is a recession that Australia had to have. We had a recession. This is Keating to the recession we had to have, in a sense, born of high interest rates. The big debate within the government and particularly the board of the Reserve Bank and the Treasury, but elsewhere in the media, the opposition parties led by John Hewson, Peter Reith, the Shadow Treasurer, etc. And the debate and the battle was over. Should we keep interest rates higher for longer and prolong the recession in order to make sure once and for all we've, as Keating later said, we've broken the stick of inflation? And that was the battle. So inside the bank, Bernie Fraser was somewhat dovish as governor. Bill Kelty was on the board from the trade union movement. And they were pushing to reduce rates faster. There was division on the board. Some wanted to hold up rates higher for longer. The opposition and the media were clamouring. Finally, the bank comes out of that period. Finally, it looks like inflation and inflation expectations have been tamed. It's at that point that the bank says to itself, well, what we're going to do is basically run a low inflation agenda. We'll introduce informally a monetary framework of its current framework aiming at 2 to 3% inflation over the medium term. And Keating allowed the bank to have its head in that sense and respected Bernie Fraser. Today, we call this low inflation agenda an inflation target. The Reserve Bank has a target of 
2 to 3% inflation, and it regulates interest rates to achieve that. So at the moment, when inflation is well above the target, the Reserve Bank increases interest rates, which reduce demand in the economy. It appreciates the exchange rate, and those factors are intended to bring inflation back down to the target. Treasurer Peter Costello has just announced the name of the new Reserve Bank Governor. The government took the opportunity in the appointment of the new Governor to make a statement to lay down its understanding of the role of the Reserve, the importance of the independence of the Reserve in the conduct of monetary policy. In 1996, Peter Costello gave the Reserve Bank independence and there was a statement on the conduct of monetary policy agreed between him as Treasurer and the new Governor, Ian McFarlane, as to their understanding of how monetary policy should operate. And within that, it was specified that there would be a target of 2 to 3%. But it was then essentially left up to the Reserve Bank as to how it would achieve that. And the tradition has been since then that politicians, and in particular the government, don't actively comment on the setting of interest rates, that that's considered to be a decision that the bank should make by itself. From the late 1990s, the RBA has effectively decided monetary policy for the Australian economy. This is a huge gift of authority from governments. Absolutely huge. They've given away monetary policy authority to a bunch of technocrats that aren't elected. Part of the reason is politicians just don't want to do it. So if that's the case, the bank needs to be fully transparent and right up with its communications to the public and to the markets. And at the moment, the RBA in particular could be doing a lot more in that regard. It's advanced a lot, but it could be a lot more. So just how successful has the RBA been in exercising this gift of authority over the past 30 years? Until COVID, until 2020, Australia had almost 30 years, 28, 29 years, without a recession. No other country, no other country in the world had achieved that. So you've got to say that on that criteria, the Reserve Bank has been very successful. Let's look at inflation, our target of 2 to 3%. Again, until COVID, if you look at from, say, 1992 through to 2019, 20, on average over that entire period, the average rate of inflation has been in the centre of that range, 2.5%. Now, other countries like New Zealand have shifted their inflation target because they haven't achieved it. COVID has been an exception. But if you're looking at the, at the period as a whole, the 90s and the 2000s, on average, the inflation record in Australia has been very good. You're exactly right. But over the few decades since inflation targeting started, macroeconomic outcomes in Australia have been very good. And the Reserve Bank probably can take some of the credit for that. In my view, I don't think you want to give it too much credit because I think the Reserve Bank has been extremely lucky that there have been periods where the bank has got things very badly wrong. In 2008, it let the economy very seriously overheat 
unemployment fell below estimates at sustainable level, and inflation accelerated quickly up to about 5%, which up until yesterday's CPI was one of the highest. And then along came the GFC (laughs) and fortunately took away all of that overheating and, in fact, put us into a downturn. So the Reserve Bank was very lucky to be saved by the GFC then. And then a very similar thing happened in reverse with the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic in 2019 and 2020, the economy was much too sluggish. Unemployment was high and rising and inflation was low and increasingly veering away from the Reserve Bank's target. And then with the pandemic, as we all know, and the shortages it caused, there was a worldwide inflation boom that put the Reserve Bank back on target. And in fact, is overshot. And we now have too high inflation, as does every other country. So we've had very good outcomes, but they've arisen because the two big times that the Reserve Bank has got things very wrong, it's been fortuitously rescued by external crises. We don't want to rely on external crises happening every time we get things wrong to put us back on target. So what's the sense in terms of today? What do you think the main drivers are for the push for this review of the Reserve Bank? There is a view that the bank has made more mistakes recently. The current treasurer tries to dampen down any feeling of criticism of the current governor or the current bank. But there is a feeling that in relation to the reaction to the COVID-19, that there was an overreaction and, and the government itself poured billions of dollars into maintaining JobKeeper. And so we had two uh, major institutions, the Treasury and the Reserve Bank, at the same time during COVID, pouring a great deal of money into the system. We're now feeling the effects, and it's very difficult to wind back those sorts of things. So what could the Reserve Bank have done? Oh, I think it could have moved a lot faster, and it probably should not have lowered interest rates to effectively zero or negative in real terms which just encouraged a great deal of investment in housing and a housing boom. It's easy to say these things with hindsight, but with hindsight, we can clearly see that there was far too much money in the system over the last three or four years. And I think a tightening up earlier would have been effective. Even a a rate of interest as high as 2% might have enabled the bank to maintain control rather better than has been the case. I think the Treasurer has done well to specify the key areas that the review should be looking at. For example, the the so-called mandate or charter of the Reserve Bank, is that still appropriate? The charter goes back to 1945. So it is appropriate to ask whether something that was written into legislation in 1945 is still appropriate for the mid-2020s. The board of the bank, the structure of the board of the bank, should there be more economic expertise on the board, less business people on the board? That'll be looked at. My view is that the macroeconomic 
management and in particular monetary policy has not been ideal over the past two decades. And a big reason for that is mistakes made by the Reserve Bank. And we, we just discussed two of the important ones. I think a big reason the Reserve Bank makes these mistakes is that it's not run by monetary policy experts. The board of the Reserve Bank is comprised of the governor and deputy governor of the Reserve Bank are on it, as is the secretary of the treasury. And then most of the other members of the board, the board has nine members, most of them are business leaders. They don't have a background in macroeconomics. They don't have training in monetary policy. They're very clever, talented people, but they're not monetary policy experts. And that, I think, can explain a lot of the big mistakes that have been made. We put a lot of reliance on the governor, Phil Lowe, and his predecessors have been very talented, competent economists, but they're human. And we don't have a structure of the Reserve Bank that can check those mistakes. Most members of the board, they don't have the training to say, but Governor, you've told us this. Doesn't the research say the opposite? And bad ideas are not challenged, and nor is it required that they be fully explained and defended. So we don't have a system that weeds out the mistakes, and we've suffered the consequences of that. Going back to the Charter, full employment, low inflation and so on, it was often pointed out that those objectives are not necessarily compatible. You know, if inflation is high, then you might have to tighten monetary policy and that could lead to a recession and unemployment. So from time to time, you may have to choose between the two, less inflation, more unemployment, less unemployment, more inflation. And I think one can get the impression that by the early 90s, the bank was saying that you can't maintain low levels of unemployment or you can't achieve full employment if inflation is running at high levels. And so there was a tendency to say, let's get inflation under control, because if we don't get inflation under control, we're going to continue to have above average rates of unemployment. I think there is a real tension between monetary policy, which is something which is purely technical. And that can be done by essentially a committee of technocrats. The problem is, however, that monetary policy and the setting of interest rates is also political in nature. And by that, I don't mean party political in nature, but political in the sense that it actually affects people's lives. So whilst it may be possible to change the numbers, it may actually devastate certain parts of the community. And that's where I think it's important to have the balance between a technocratical approach or a sort of a pure economics approach and an approach that has a broader perspective. And I think that the, the tension is potentially between the independence of the Reserve Bank, that first obligation, stability of the currency. But then you do have the last obligation, which is the welfare of the Australian population. And personally, I've always seen that as sort of the counterbalance. So not just a technocratical approach, but also a slightly more human 
or political approach to it. And by that, I, I have to be clear, I don't mean political in a party political sense, but just in a more social or a social welfare approach. Louise Parsons, Associate Professor at Bond University. My other guests, Selwyn Cornish, the author of The Evolution of the Central Bank in Australia. Boris Shedvin, author of In Reserve, The Central Bank in Australia, 1945 to 75. Stephen Bell, author of Australia's Money Mandarins. And Peter Tulip, Chief Economist at the Centre for Independent Studies. The sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision on ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.